0: Turn, if you will, in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter, back toward the end of your Bible. Chapter 1, we'll look at verses 3 to 12 today. As we said, according to the church calendar, this is the second Sunday of Easter. The church calendar, I think Easter, there's seven Sundays of Easter. We probably won't... uh, be talking all seven Sundays, but the point is that uh, there's more to this than just one day, that the resurrection of Jesus is worthy of our attention, um, not just one day, not even just one day a week, the fact that we worship on Sunday instead of Saturday, but, uh, but it, it, it would be accurate to say that uh, Jesus' resurrection eclipses every event in history and changes everything concerning our faith. That was Apostle Peter's attitude. It's very clear as we read this passage. Now this this passage is um, a little long and I may struggle to get through it today. But uh, listen as I read it. 1 Peter chapter 1, picking up with verse 3 and reading down through verse uh, 12. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials." the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. Every Sunday we end our service with a very brief song, which is commonly called the doxology, which is uh, from the word doxa, which means praise. It's a song of praise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Well, this, morning, this morning's text, the whole thing that I read is Peter's doxology, except he starts with it rather than ends this letter with it, and it's anything but brief, you may have noticed. It's kind of like uh, one of those death by chocolate desserts, you know, it's just more than you can handle. Uh, William Barclay uh, says of this text, there are a few passages in the New Testament where more of the great fundamental Christian ideas and, and conceptions meet and come together. That's a true statement. It's full. But we're going to try to unpack three wonderful truths that are kind of at the heart of this passage. So stick with me. Uh, we're going to try to work through this and stay close to the text, even though it is a bit uh, lengthy. The first great truth we see here is that Jesus rose to give us new life. Jesus rose from the dead to give us new life. We see that stated clearly in verse three. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This truth about being born again, being made new in Christ is the defining difference between being a Christian and just being a religious person. Throughout the New Testament, the logic is simple, but very profound. If Jesus died on the cross in our place to pay for our sins, then when he died, we who are joined to him legally died. Therefore, we're no longer guilty. We're no longer under sin's power, for our death penalty has been paid in full. And if we are joined to Jesus when he died, then we were also joined with him when he rose from the dead. Therefore, the Holy Spirit, who raised Jesus from the dead, also gives new birth to resurrection life, to us who believe in Jesus. We are alive in Christ. Jesus rose to give us new life. Now, for, for Peter, his experience was different than ours. Peter saw Jesus when he was alive. He saw Jesus die on the cross. And then he saw Jesus alive again in a few days. So he probably felt this great renewal inside, a kind of a newborn experience that Jesus is alive again. But that experience is not what Peter's talking about here. The readers that he, of his, this epistle, the ones he wrote this to, they were people like us. They didn't ever see Jesus before he died or after. But when they heard and believed the gospel, the Spirit of God joined them and us to Jesus and made them and us new creatures reborn, alive in Christ. This new life, though, is not just a matter of a new, renewed feeling that we have. This new life changes our status. It makes us the children of God, heirs with Christ. And so as he talks about this new birth and this new life we have in Christ, in verse 4 he goes right on to talk about living hope and an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade, that comes with this new life. Now, these words hope and inheritance are used a bit different than we tend to use them. We speak of hope with a great deal of uncertainty. We say, well, I hope so. That means I think probably not, but maybe, you never know. And when you speak of inheritance, kind of the same way, I hope that grandpa leaves me some money, but I don't really know that he's going to. A lot of uncertainty. But when the Bible speaks of these things, it speaks... with certainty, with the expectation of something promised, but just not yet delivered. And so it speaks of our hope and inheritance that are ours in Christ, though we don't know him fully yet. In the Old Testament, the word inheritance was used to describe the promised land, the land of Canaan that God gave to Israel. But verse four says that our inheritance is Christ, in Christ is better than that, better than any piece of real estate anywhere that we might have, because it is imperishable. The inheritance of the land of Canaan perished; the people turned away from the Lord. He kicked them out of the land, sent them to, as exiles to Babylon. But our inheritance in Christ never perishes; it's undefilable. The Old Testament's forbids lots of things, lest they defile the land. But our inheritance in Christ is undefilable. And it's unfading. It doesn't wear out. Even the most beautiful things of the most beautiful land wear out and die off. But what Christ gives us will never fade or wear out or die off. You see, this wonderful inheritance, this certain hope is nothing less than being raised from the dead like Jesus was to live in a new heaven and new earth in God's eternal, perfect kingdom. That's our inheritance. But even more, it's an eternal life in right relationship with the Lord himself. For in Christ we become heirs, the children of God. He is our inheritance. He is our inheritance. Psalm 73, the psalm writer anticipates this. He says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And, on, and earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. He is my portion forever. What an inheritance is ours by the risen Christ. So Jesus rose to give us new life. And with that life comes an eternal inheritance. But Peter's not done yet. He goes on to say, and God himself guarantees it. God himself guarantees it. Have you purchased any major appliance lately? It's an interesting experience. You pick it out and you get your checkbook out or your credit card or whatever and you think you're just about finished with this transaction and all of a sudden the clerk says, do you want a warranty? Of course they want a warranty. That's your problem, right? Oh no. They want you to buy a warranty. They want you to provide the guarantee yourself for their product. Well folks, I got good news. God himself guarantees the new life an eternal inheritance He gives us. That's what we read in verses four and five. God keeps our inheritance for us. It's reserved for us when we get to heaven. It has been readied, all set to be revealed when the time is perfect. Remember, that's what Jesus said the night before He died. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. God Himself is preparing and preserving our inheritance, but that's not all He's preserving. According to verse 5, he is also busy preserving, keeping us. Peter uses a military word, shielded, to describe God's care for his reborn children. We are surrounded by God's mighty resurrection power to protect, to shield us until that final day. And so the book of Jude, reflecting that, ends with this wonderful doxology that says, to him... Who is able to keep you from falling? It says, great. To keep you from falling and to present you before His glorious presence without fault and with great joy. God guarantees His inheritance. Jesus rose to give us new life. Folks, this is unlike any religion in the world. This is not a plan of things that we need to do to try to win favor with God. Oh, no, that's not what this is about. In Jesus' resurrection, we have nothing less than new life, rebirth from God himself by the resurrection power of the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. We have an eternal inheritance, the kingdom of God, relation to God himself for eternity, and a certainty about it that rests not in us, but rests in Jesus. All this ought to cause our hearts to rejoice. And that's exactly what it does, as we learn in our second point. That's this. Because Jesus lives, we rejoice even in suffering. Because Jesus lives, we rejoice even in suffering. Now, so far as we've talked, you may think, well, what we're describing here is some pie-in-the-sky religion, which doesn't really square with the real uh, world of brokenness and pain. Well, all that changes in verse 6, where we read, In this you greatly rejoice, greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. One author I read calls verse 6, that jolt. Well, it's not a surprise that we might rejoice in God's great salvation. How could we do otherwise? The jolt is that immediately after this promise of a new life and an inheritance kept for uh, for us and God's shielding power to keep us, the jolt comes in the statement, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer tougher. If God's keeping us, how can we incur trials and suffering? Well, where's God's care? Where's God's mercy? Where's God's power? Where's God's wisdom? And so, though Job's friends were great theologians apparently, they stumbled here. They could not understand that God's plan for his people might include suffering. And even King David, though the Lord says he's a man after God's own heart, when he saw the wicked prospering and the righteous suffering, it almost stripped him up. It almost stripped him up. It almost destroyed his faith. And to this day, Suffering makes us stumble, doesn't it? Why, Lord? Why? What's going on? What are you doing? So how can we rejoice in the midst of suffering? Well, verse 7 throws some light on this dilemma. There we read, These trials come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine, and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ Jesus is revealed. Here Peter draws an analogy between our faith and the refining of gold. Gold, though it's of great value, gets exposed to intense heat. But the the goal is not to destroy the gold. The goal is to destroy everything but the gold. Thus, it proves the value of the gold and enhances the value of the gold by making it purer. In the same way, trials, suffering, hardship, brokenness, pain, prove the genuineness of our faith and strengthen our faith, remove all the mess of in the in, in midst of our faith, making its value even greater. You see, this salvation which Jesus purchased for us with his life is greater than we ever could imagine. We can understand a salvation. We might sometimes think this is what God has done for us. A, a salvation that just gives us a charmed life. A lot of Christians think that way. I'm a Christian. I will have a charmed life. I don't have to suffer the things other people suffer because I belong to the Lord. Sorry, that's not what the Bible says. But we can understand that kind of salvation. We can also understand a salvation that promises everything someday, but today you're going to be miserable. And there are a lot of Christians that live that way. We know someday, but today, the Christian faith is a miserable thing. It's a miserable experience. No, no, no. What we cannot comprehend is this great salvation that we actually have in Christ. We do not see him yet, but we already really know there is in Christ. Christ. And though in our trials, he may seem far off sometimes because we know he is alive. We have the strength and we have the reason to keep on believing and trusting. And even in the midst of pain and grief, we still enjoy fellowship with the living Lord. This is the consistent teaching of the scriptures that we can rejoice even in the midst of suffering. We read it in Romans Five, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. We read the same kind of thing in James chapter 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials. Most of us didn't get there. Most of us didn't get there yet, did we? Pure joy when we face trials because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Dear people, this resurrection joy is something more than what the world calls joy. There's something mysterious about this joy, which exists side by side with with sorrow. Paul talks about being sorrowful, but always rejoicing. The women uh, who saw the empty tomb tomb are described as being afraid, but filled with joy at the same time. Peter says, this joy is not only glorious, but it's inexpressible. It's more than the superficial hilarity of a good joke. This is a joy that doesn't always express itself so readily. This is a joy which God works deep in the reborn soul. It is a joy that controls our response to trial and suffering and to blessing. It is a joy sometimes indistinguishable from the other fruit of the Spirit, the love and the, and the peace and the long-suffering and meekness and self-control. Bishop J.C. Ryle, a generation ago, suggested that this Christian joy is rooted in the Christian's ability to face reality. Rooted in the Christian's ability to face reality. Listen to what he says. He says, the true Christian is the only happy man because he can sit down quietly and think about his soul. He can look behind him. Think how unhinged so many people have become because of their past. He can think. He can look behind him. He can think calmly about things to come and yet not be afraid. Sickness is painful. Death is solemn. Judgment day is an awful thing. But having Christ for him, he has nothing to fear. He can think calmly about the holy God whose eyes are on all his ways and feel he's my father. I am weak. I'm unprofitable. Yet in Christ, he regards me as his dear child with, which, with whom he's well pleased. Bishop Brown concludes, oh, what a privilege to be able to think And not be afraid. Or more recently, the Gaithers put it in a popular song, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. We can and we must rejoice even in our suffering for Jesus rose from the dead to bring us his great salvation. And according to verse 9, our blessings and our trials are all part of us being saved, now and forever. Finally, one more truth here about the significance of Christ's resurrection. And that's this, thirdly, all history has waited for Jesus. All history has waited for Jesus. Let me read again verses 10 to 12. Concerning this salvation, The prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven Even angels long to look into these things. We sometimes struggle with what to make of the Old Testament scriptures. Especially mysterious um, are the prophets. What were the prophets doing? How are we to interpret what they said? Does it actually have anything to do with us directly or just some uh, far off application? Well, this text doesn't provide a lot of detail, but it does answer quite clearly. The prophets were pointing us to Jesus, for all history was waiting for Jesus to come. Now, this does not mean that the prophets had no conscious role, that God put words in their mouth and they had no idea what they were saying. That's not true. Verse 10 specifically says, they searched intently with the greatest care to understand this salvation. But verse 11 also says, they did not understand all that the Spirit was prophesying through them. They only wished they knew the time and circumstances of its its fulfillment. And in verse 12, they eventually understood that they were speaking of things beyond themselves, Things now revealed to us. But this much is always clear. The prophets were pointing us to Jesus. All history waited for Jesus. Now, simple as that might sound, not everyone agrees. There are many who would actually deny that statement. The objection goes like this. You can't pour the New Testament back into the Old Testament. You have to take the Old Testament for what it is in itself. You can't Christianize the Old Testament. And so some theologians would say, the scripture is but a record of the religious uh, experience of those people who wrote it. Perhaps we could benefit from reading about other people's experience, but ultimately it has nothing to do with us. At best, these ancient experiences might stir up the work of God in us to experience something. Well, but this passage disagrees quite clearly. It says that the prophets were meant to point us to Christ, that all history was waiting for him. Now, that's kind of where the liberal theologians go. Some evangelical theologians go a different direction. They also object. In the name of literal literal interpretation, they would demand that the message of the Old Testament prophets must be limited to what those prophets understood at the time. These senior Christian brothers would say, we can't go back and reinterpret prophecy in light of the gospel. We must expect the fulfillment which the prophets expected. In other words, the fulfillment only has to do with Israel. It never has to do with the Christian church, which didn't exist at that time as it does now. Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke, who used to believe that, struggled through this in his theological journey, and he wrote an article about it in Christianity Today a a few years ago, uh, entitled "Is It Right to Read the New Testament into the Old?" Let me just read a little bit about what he what he wrote. Waltke says the New Testament has priority in unpacking the meaning of the Old Testament. The whole of Scriptures interprets the parts. Of Scripture. The Christian doctrine of the plenary or complete inspiration of the Scripture demands that we allow the divine author to tell us at a later time more precisely what he meant in earlier statements. Verse 11 seems to agree it was the Spirit of Christ in the prophets who pointed them forward to the work of Jesus. And that's exactly how the apostles understood it. All history was waiting for Jesus. Folks, there are huge implications of this truth. If the Spirit of God through the ancient prophets meant to point us to Jesus, then history has some meaning. These days, all kinds of people deny that history has any meaning. Everything is thought to be simply chance plus time. Therefore, people live lives consumed with the moment. All that matters is what it means to me right this minute. Even we Christians often live like there's no objective meaning of history. That we believe in God, but all we believe is that He's blessing me and making me prosper and making me feel good and fulfilling me right today, right this minute. That's all that matters. But again, if the Spirit of God through the ancient prophets is pointing forward to Jesus, then there is a meaning to history that's greater than our feelings. History proceeds from God and is headed toward his intended goal. But Peter goes even further. He says the prophets were pointing specifically to the suffering and the glory of Jesus. In other words, the gospel is in view. Many people are willing to talk about Jesus all day until you start talking about Jesus hanging on the cross and Jesus raise, rising from the dead, an empty tomb. And then they start backing off. You see, everyone would like to make Jesus malleable, They want Jesus the mild man or doer of good deeds or Jesus the counterculture rebel or Jesus the, the, the therapist or whatever. But here the Spirit says that the suffering of Jesus and the glory of Jesus' resurrection was the whole point. All history awaited God's suffering and resurrected Messiah, which the prophets had predicted. This morning I tell you that because Jesus rose from the dead... Our whole worldview has to change. This division that we make between what's secular and what's sacred, the wall falls down. It all belongs to him. This Jesus for whom all history has been waiting is now alive from the dead and has been enthroned as the Lord of everything. We can no longer be driven by the trends and the powers and the wealth of this world. Jesus, for whom all history has waited, is now alive, risen from the dead. Three truths this morning. Jesus rose to give us new life. And because Jesus rose, we rejoice even in our suffering. For all history has waited for Jesus. Here we are a week after Easter talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Have we gone over the top a little bit? Are we kind of like a loose cannon here, gone too far? saying Easter has absolutely changed everything about the world forever. Now, if you, if you do that sometimes, you know, you kind of go over the top and kind of get out of, out of control. The best thing to do is conclude, conclude with a, a kind of a calmer, gentler mitigating statement. That's not what the apostle Peter does. (laughs) After speaking of the greatness of this salvation, the absolute certainty of Jesus' resurrection, listen to how he finishes in verse 12. Even angels long to look into these things. (laughs) That's not backing down. That statement only shows that the gospel is more radical than we ever dreamed. How's that statement true, you think? Let me just briefly give you some things. Angels know perfectly the holiness, the purity of God and his hatred of sin. They know all about that. They're before him night and day, crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. So they would long to know How can that holy God that cannot look on evil, how can he be so gracious to these sinful, wretched creatures of his? Angels long to look into that and understand that. Angels have also seen the eternal son in all his glory before the world began. One with the father. And so they must want to know, they must long to understand how, why would he allow himself to be totally humiliated in poverty as one of his creatures and then suffering and beaten and crucified and spit upon. Why would he allow that? Just to save a bunch of undeserving sinners. Angels long to look into these things. Indeed, since the angels have seen the length to which God has gone to redeem us, I suspect the angels long to know how we can take it all so lightly. The angels long indeed to look into this great salvation accomplished by Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Dear people, there's nothing in heaven or on earth as significant as this fact Jesus has risen from the dead Amen Let's pray Father we talk about things that we can't get our minds around and so forgive us if we struggle a bit and sound disjointed We can't understand. Oh, Father, the angels can't get their minds around it. We can't. And yet, Lord, what we understand, what we do know, is truly glorious. What's pitiful is how far fall short how far we fall short of living in light of this truth. Change us, we pray. Thank you that you've given us new life and that you don't abandon us, that your spirit works in us to perfect that which will be gone. Keep doing that, we ask, until we stand in your presence perfectly completed as you've designed us to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.